Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Edward Boyden, who is a neuroscientist and the Y. Eva Tan Professor of Neurotechnology at the MIT Media Lab and McGovern Institute for Brain Research. Uh, this one's been a long time coming. Dr. Boyden originally came to Atlanta uh, to give a presentation back in March. We had everything planned out to do the podcast in person. Very, very excited. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't able to occur, so we plan to do some recording remote. And lo and behold, uh, COVID comes. We have our lockdown. And in a whole scramble, we put off uh, recording the podcast for a few months. But finally, we got a chance to uh, come together. And um, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Borden a rock star in the field of neuroscience and neuroengineering. Uh, him and his lab have really helped uh, pioneer and bring forward a lot of very important uh, neuro-based technologies that are needed for basic research. He's probably perhaps most famous for pioneering the work of optogenetics, but also is extremely well known for his work in expansion microscopy, both of which are, uh, we'll talk about in this podcast, but both of which are really important in driving forward a lot of questions that neuroscientists have been asking for the last decade or so plus. Uh, he's a whiz, wears many hats, does so many different things, not only at MIT, but in the greater Boston area. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this podcast. Uh, disclosure, when we were talking uh, before we hit the record button, we were uh, you know, talking uh, about a few things non-podcast related. Uh, that's why when we start, it appears as though it's a rough cut directly into our conversation. Uh, so I just want to let you know you'll be hearing that at the beginning, but afterwards, uh, smooth sailing. So I hope you guys enjoyed. Uh, first, we'll uh, hear a little bit from our friends on Cats on Wax, and then Ed Boyden. You guys enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, how about yourself? I wanted to ask, uh, you know, I know for this podcast, there was a bunch of things that I had written down for the docket, you know, if we were talking about this, you know, back when you came to visit Georgia State in the spring, but a lot's changed since then. I'm curious how you've been holding up with COVID. How's life at home been? How's research been? I know Massachusetts has been probably one of the biggest hit areas. How, how have things been with you? Well, we're all working at home. This is beginning of month three. So uh, just doing a lot of writing. Uh, well, some people are doing COVID-19 work. Um, so, you know, building a ventilator, um, you know, what can do mental therapies, that kind of stuff. Okay. Because I would think MIT, they probably are more on the – so, like, I know they were hit quite hard for Boston. I don't know. What are the restrictions right now in terms of, like, who can go out, who can stay in? Do you need, like, special permission from the university to do anything? Or, like, what's the state overall? Uh, well, uh, essential workers can come in, people doing COVID-related work. Okay. Um, and uh, and people need to you know keep animal strains going and that kind of thing. Got it. And how are you in terms of you know your mentoring in your lab and everything? I'm sure everything is now through Zoom or some type of you know virtual meeting. Is that something that you've been used Correct. to before, or like how is that? Uh, how is the lab dynamic like the transition into doing everything online and virtual? Has it been easy, tough? Well, when people do a lot of wet lab work, they can't do the wet lab work, right? Exactly. So I don't think anyone would call that easy. Right. So, and, but in terms of like when you meet with like your students and everything, like, is it, you know, weekly type of Zoom calls? Are they trying to be a little bit more proactive? Do you give any advice to people in your labs on how to stay motivated? Because I know for a lot of colleagues I have here at Georgia State, sometimes it's, you know, weird when you're at home, and you're trying to do everything there. It's just a different 
lifestyle, a different way of working? Like, I don't know if there was any strategies that you've pointed to for anyone in your lab, like this is a way that you can still try to stay productive or do you, would you say people are pretty self-motivated in this time? You know, every individual is different and uh, I don't think there's a formula. I think you have to listen to people and then you have to treat them like human beings uh, with compassion and, and, and thinking. Nice. And I know that you're probably really plugged in with a lot of the the higher ups and everything, you know, through university connections, maybe some state connections. Has there been any talk of how, I know Massachusetts is probably different than other states, but how things probably are going to proceed going forward? Is there a push to maybe open research labs sooner rather than later or like students or faculty coming onto campus? What have you heard in terms of where you think we're going to be moving forward with this in the next few months? Well, the Boston Globe said that Governor Baker of Massachusetts uh is uh, announcing some kind of four-part plan with people opening up different parts of the economy. Um, of course, a lot depends upon how well it goes. If cases go up, then 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 the plan might have to go go back. Right. Um, so I think it's uh, there's a lot of unknowns. Right. And um, for you personally, do you think this whole thing has shifted any type of lab practices? I know for like our group right now, we've pretty much talked to ourselves even when we come back in person and, you know, like, you know, we're in the lab and we're actually doing work, we might shift to doing a lot more uh, collaborative work online, just, you know, with the idea that a simple phone call or a Zoom call might be able to convey something instead of physically meeting, even though we're still going to have like physical lab meetings, I think this is still going to probably change some lab practices moving forward. Have you thought about how maybe your lab structure probably will change just based on practices that you're putting in right now? Well, right now, the practice they're putting in place is nobody goes in the lab unless you have to maintain an animal or if you're doing COVID-19 work, basically. So um, as we go back, I guess it really depends on the context. What are the rules going to be? Right. I don't know those yet. Exactly. And your group is, I guess, fairly large. Like you have a good amount of students and research scientists. Do you, did you, before this all happened, were you guys meeting as a whole group beforehand or was it more like smaller types of meetings depending on what project you're working on or what? what was the overall specific aim of like a project or were you guys always meeting together beforehand? Both. We have group meetings and we also have subgroup meetings where sets of people get together. Got it. So I guess it's kind of just like a wait and see. And like you said, the context of when things come back, it's probably something that's a little difficult to predict. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's funny how like, even though there are people all over the world that are doing science, I've talked to people that are, you know, in Europe, some people here in Georgia state, some people in Atlanta, you of course in Massachusetts, it really is kind of like a wait and see. And, you know, I guess we can prognosticate how things are going to be once things start to get back to the new normal, I guess you could say, but really it's anybody's guess right now. Um, But one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on this podcast, and again, this is something that we're going to be speaking with to a lot of the people here in Atlanta and a lot of neuroscientists that are really into groundbreaking scientific research, because a lot of the stuff that you presented here at Georgia State and a lot of the things that you're working on really are things that are driving forward the field of neuroscience and discovery and different types of techniques that are going to help overall basic biological research. So I wanted to get into your thoughts on a lot of the cool things that you did talk about when you came to Georgia State. But um, before we get there, you know, most of the people I talk with are usually wet lab biologists, you know, in training that, you know, when their PhD work and their grad work, they were exclusively people who did molecular work or genetics work. And it's very rare that I talk to anyone that has a strong math or engineering background, which I know uh, you do, um, that you were at MIT and you started as a, I guess, a physics major and an engineering major. And I was curious, 
what got you into that field and can you discuss that transition from a pure uh, engineering background and how you moved more into the biological sciences? Well, I studied chemistry for two years uh, in Texas and then transferred to MIT. So I was an undergrad for, for six years. And then when I went to MIT, I studied physics and electrical engineering and computer science. And I was always drawn to projects at the border of science and philosophy. So when I was in Texas, I worked on a project in a group on the origins of life. Could you make life from scratch in a test tube? Which, of course, didn't work or you would have heard about it. Um, but it was still great training. And then at MIT, I worked on quantum computing, which, again, is at the border of sort of the mysterious and the practical. So those are both really hard problems, right? We still don't understand the origins of life, and we still don't have really great quantum computers. Um, and so third time's a charm. In 1998, about 22 years ago, I decided to study the brain. And again, it's about as philosophical as it gets. What are thoughts and feelings? What makes us human? Right. But if we can also really uh, uh, understand it, there's lots of practical consequences. You know, over a billion people around the world have some kind of brain disease, if you include you know, things like addiction and, and, and so forth, you know, lots of, and basically there are no cures for any of these, right? Yes. So huge unmet need in terms of human suffering. So, and that's pretty nice much. so when you walked in, you know, with that strong engineering background, did you find like it was a really strong asset? Like how welcome were your uh, mentors at the time to taking someone who wasn't, you know, used to, I guess, pipetting or the basics that like a biological researcher was had? Was it like a nice mesh with you and those biological scientists or was there some pushback right away oh i, I loved it uh, i got into every grad school i applied to people really liked the idea of somebody um bringing in these scientific and engineering skills i mean uh, uh it's, it's all about the thinking right and bringing in new ways of thinking uh is a very powerful thing to do so when I, you- my co-mentors at stanford were, were fantastic and really welcoming and I really thrived by learning how to do biology with them. I was going to say, so I know you worked with Jennifer Raymond, who I've had the fortunate uh, nature to talk to as well. And I know she does a lot of biological mechanisms of learning, which I know is different from the type of work that you have right now. So I'm curious, you know, when you were studying with her at Stanford, you know, those types of experiments that you were doing, did you kind of have free reign to investigate what you will at the time? Or were you kind of following on top of what um, Jennifer Raymond's uh, studies at the time were dictating? Like, how much freedom did you have, I guess, when you were in that lab? Well, it's a tricky question, right? Because a really great mentor, you know, you'll you'll have freedom and you'll be doing what they want, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, if a student has total freedom and then they do very badly, then that's a, the mentor has failed. And if the, if the mentor tells the student exactly what to do and the student doesn't think, then the mentor has also failed. So I, I felt that with Dick Chen and Jennifer Raymond as my co-mentors, it was the best of both worlds. You know, I was doing what they wanted, but I was also feeling very free to do what I wanted. Right. And so those type of, you know, philosophies, I'm guessing that's what you give to your grad students now, right? Like the idea that you're there in order to give insight and guidance, but you pretty much let your own students right now dictate, you know, their own thoughts and ideas and bring whatever they have uniquely to the table, correct? Well, but you also need to be a mentor. You also need to make sure that they succeed and do really well too, right? So again, if you let somebody do very bad work and just watch them and, you know, without helping them, that's not good, right? So I really try to, again, you want to be in that, you know, sort of superposition of, of where you're guiding them towards excellence and yet they're also free to do what they want. It's Absolutely. a very difficult art. Absolutely. Um, did you take any lessons from the style of which you were mentored in terms of how you're mentoring the students now? Like when you look for a student now, what are probably some of the 
high characteristics are you looking at? Are you looking more for someone with maybe an engineering background, a biology background, a neuroscience background, or more? is it more like a higher level of thinking and an autonomy in a person that you're looking for? Like what is the type of student, the type of lab personnel that you think thrives in your environment? It really depends. I mean, I have a PhD student finishing up uh, and his previous background was uh, he was a professional artist. Um, I have a few people in my group who never finished college, so they have no background, so to speak. Um, I really try to, again, it goes back to an earlier question that we talked about. I really try to think of people as individuals and, and really work with them as human to human. You know, there's no formula here. Exactly. And I think it's got to be tough as a mentor in terms of you probably have to adapt your mentoring style to the to the person. Is there any techniques or advice that you have? Because, you know, even me as a graduate student, I still have to mentor, you know, undergraduates or, you know, more junior graduate students. And I always struggle with trying to adapt my teaching style or my way of mentoring to the person. Um, besides being observant, is there any other helpful techniques that you have? Yeah, I don't really think that techniques is the right word. I really just try to be a human being and to treat them like a human being. And I mean, it's with respect and dignity and, and understanding and compassion. Oh, I don't think there's a formula. All right. No, that's really good advice. Um, going back to the work that you were doing um, at Stanford, so the cerebellar mechanisms of learning, um, you know, from that, it seems as though you shifted to the work that you've done with, you know, optogenetics. And I'm curious, that seems like, you know, uh, not like a right term, but like something that's very uh, unrelated, or are those two types of research ideas related in some way or form? I'm curious, though, how you went from, you know, looking at learning and memory to optogenetics. How did that transition occur? Well, it didn't. Uh, when I applied for grad schools, I asked everybody, what can an engineer and a physical scientist do for neuroscience? So I was thinking about technology from day one. And optogenetics actually happened in parallel. It was an independent side project done in parallel to my PhD. So we published the first optogenetics paper uh, in summer of 2015. And believe it or not, I actually turned in my thesis two months later for my PhD on motor learning. So um, developing technology, I guess, down to fundamental building blocks across space and time of the brain was intentionality from day one, and, and, the, and the, the project happened in parallel to the PhD. So I know opsins have been, you know, the, the idea of opsins and the study of opsins, that's, that's been around for a while, like all the way since the 70s, 60s. I think you can find some published work on that. I'm curious when you picked that up in parallel to your, your graduate work, like what, what led you to that? Was it just like you were reading a bunch of papers and this seemed like an interesting idea to stumble on? Did a faculty advisor or did someone you meet at a conference say, oh, perhaps taking this research for opsins and turning it into what is now optogenetics, that might be an idea? Like how did you transition into that work? Was it just a ton of reading, a ton of listening to people? How did you get on that path? Well, I met my collaborator, Carl Weissroth, when uh, we were both students. I was just starting the PhD. He was wrapping up the MD. Um, uh, in Dick Chen's lab, and we started brainstorming, going through all the laws of physics. How could you use energy to control the brain? And there's only so many kinds of ways to deliver energy to the brain, right? Light, magnetic fields, electric fields, a handful of ways to deliver energy into the brain. So it's not a very long list. And so we picked light, uh, and uh, what got me interested in the options was reading papers about how these converted light into electrical signals. And uh, one paper, um, which kicked off... Um, my interest in actually starting to collect these genes from collaborators uh, was a, a paper from a group in Japan where they noted that you know most of these molecules have been characterized in halophiles. These are organisms that live in really salty water. But one of these organisms, for whatever strange evolutionary reason, the molecule that uh, it 
um, exhibited that was an opsin uh, worked at low salt concentrations, the kind that you might find in the human body. And so that was the first molecule that I reached out to start collecting. And that uh, later was, of course, the, the halo dopsin that we use for neural sounds. Now, since that work, like we mentioned earlier, is different from your thesis work, were you fortunate enough to be able to conduct this research in your main laboratory? Or did you go to another group at Stanford and they took you in? I know you mentioned your your collaborator that, you know, was on that same page as you, like how willing was your committee and your thesis advisors to say, Hey, Ed, this is a fantastic idea. Go for it. Um, so this, uh, this work was not done with their knowledge. Actually, I had a Hertz fellowship, so I had uh, my own funding source and spent a lot of time doing alternate collaborations. You know, I, I took business school classes, even thought about starting a company. Um, and so it was really sort of a parallel track and done in parallel time. Okay. Um, and then so once you're you're working on this work, obviously it's, you know, lightning in a bottle. You probably understand the potential of how fantastic this is. Was there any, um, you know, anytime I have like a really cool scientific finding and I want to present it at a, a conference or a, give a talk about it, you know, there's always the joy of sharing your research with others, but also the scary nature that there are scientists out there that may want to scoop or take some of the information that might be unpublished and use it, you know, for their own type of publication or talk or what have you. Um, I was curious when you were working on optogenetics, what was your mindset at that time? Did you think, oh, this is something that needs to be shared with the world right away? Was there a fear of having this information get scooped since I know a lot of people were working on this type of research as well? Like, what was your mindset when you were going through that? Well, certainly we wanted to move as fast as possible. Um, and so, uh, yeah, basically, as soon as we had it ready to go, we submitted the paper. Um, on the other hand, of course, if you want to share the technology with the world. If we build a new technology and nobody uses it, what's the point? And so we freely distribute all these molecules to whoever asks. Um, I forget the number of sendouts you've done, but it must be well over 10,000 at this point, uh, sendouts from AdGene and from MIT and um, but I haven't really kept an accurate count. Exactly. No, and I know that's something that you've always advocated for a long time, this idea of data sharing and technique sharing, you know, keeping all this uh, information open sourced. Um, unfortunately, that's not the way that all science is right now, but I feel like there is a little bit of a push to be more collaborative in that nature. Uh, do you see, you know, if you were to prognosticate five, ten years down the road, do you think science is going to become more of an open sourced venture, or are we still going to be closed off and people, for lack of a better word, are still going to be selfish with their data and their information. How do you see that type of uh, trend going? Well, it's all about incentives, right? Uh, people want jobs, people want grants, people want to graduate with PhDs and so forth. So uh, what you reward, you will get. You know, if people are rewarded for sharing, then more people will do it. If people get scooped because they shared too early and they're not rewarded, then people will do less of it. Do you so think I guess the question is, where are the incentives? Right. So do you think that probably starts with the individual labs and their findings? Or do you think that's something that would probably be, I don't know, regulated from more of a higher organization, like a funding agency or NIH, or maybe just some organization of the federal government? Like, would you say that whatever push is going to start at the lower level? Or would you say the higher level? It's a good question. I don't know for sure. But I do think it's all about the incentives, right? So if, if people are rewarded, with grants or with PhDs or with faculty jobs or whatever somebody wants um, for a certain kind of behavior, then you're going to get more of that. And so I guess the question is, where is that headed? And I don't know the answer. Would you say from your your colleagues in the field, you get more uh, 
praise or scrutiny for the idea that you do try to make all your work available to the public? Like, what's the response to you um, as a person? Oh, people love it. They love using our tools to answer questions. I mean, uh, one of our latest inventions, expansion microscopy, uh, which is a way of making the brain and other tissues bigger so you can do nanoimaging on regular microscopes. We've taught hundreds of groups how to do it. Um, about 150 preprints and papers doing an expansion process have come out already. So it's spreading very, very quickly. I think much faster than optogenetics. But I, again, I haven't really been precisely counting. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, we really want to share the technique as widely as possible. So we'll get back to optogenetics in a minute, but I, I think it's really a good transition. You brought up um, expansion microscopy. So uh, just introduce that to some people who don't know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's essentially a technique where, you know, I know you use the diaper polymers and the idea of taking a small bit of tissue and expanding it. So the opposite of what we would think of microscopy, the idea of, you know, trying to get finer and finer resolution to see something really, really small, why not make the object that we're trying to resolve uh, larger? Would you say very simply that's what expansion microscopy is? Yeah, we synthesize a dense, swellable network of polymer throughout a specimen, around and between all the biomolecules, inside and outside of the cells. And then we soften the specimen and then add water. And as the swellable polymer absorbs the water, it makes the physical specimen bigger. And it's a very simple procedure. We publish protocols step-by-step step how to do it. And we've done hands-on training of, of hundreds of groups at this point through little short courses we've taught you know, in multiple countries and multiple institutes and, and also hosting people to visit at MIT. And you mentioned probably the, be- the biggest beauty of it is the cost of getting into something like that. And the ease is just really simple, right? Like if you took an educated scientist and sat them down with the protocol and a list of reagents and things to buy, it's probably not expensive and probably the, uh, the curve to get into that isn't too difficult. Very cheap, yeah. Um, classes routinely teach expansion microscopy, like this how to grow almost anything class at MIT. Um, the, the expenses are very, very minimal. Um, and the protocols are very reliable. We taught a class over at UMass uh, Medical School and uh, several dozen students uh, went through a, a day, day and a half long procedure to do some expansion. And uh, if I recall, every student got to work on the first try. That's excellent. Um, we're, t- we're talking about expanding tissues. Um, I'm curious, what is the maximum expansion possible that we currently have right now? Like how big are we talking if we're looking at like a piece of tissue or a cell or something like that? Like how big can we expand the said object? How, how many fold increase you mean? Yes. Or how big the initial start? Yeah, a fold increase is probably a better way to say it. Oh, yeah. Well, you, uh, we three years ago published a, a protocol we call iterative expansion. So you can take a specimen, polymerize it, and expand it, form a second polymer in a space opened up by the first, and you could do it again. And that process, in theory, could be repeated as many times as you want. Um, so we've repeated it up to three times, about 100-fold linear expansion, if I recall. And would you say that that's probably, I mean, that's obviously what we've done so far, but do you predict that there is a limit? Like if we keep expanding the boundaries of this, how big do you think we could get? I don't think there's a fundamental in it, but there's a limit of practicality probably, right? You know, if you, uh, keep, you, you're probably not going to get resolution better than some fundamental parameter of the polymer, right? So for example, if you expand something many, 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 many times, but the initial polymer density was a spacing of, let's say, two nanometers, you're not going to beat that resolution, right? Right, exactly. Um, everything that we're looking at, like the specimen that we're looking at, is this all in static? Like if we're looking at a cell, is this a cell that we're only taking a look at the properties of the cell? Or can we look at something dynamic, like maybe a cancer cell metastasizing or DNA, where you can actually maybe see 
changes happening in real time or is everything that you could look at with expansion microscopy static? Expansion only works on preserved tissues, yeah, so it's a snapshot. The idea that maybe you could actually see something, you know, that's not a snapshot, maybe like a video of something happening in real time, like maybe a cell going through mitosis or meiosis in a larger stage or, like I said, a cancer cell metastasizing. Is that something that you think could be possible or would you say that this technique is limited to, like you said, a, a snapshot? I think it's limited to a snapshot. Okay. But, you know, you could try to maybe look at some molecules moving around or something if they weren't anchored. I, mean, I don't think a complex multifactorial cellular function like metastasis would still be functional. Okay. And when you're observing these specimens, I mean, it's just as simple as you do the expansion and then it's just a simple electron microscope that you're looking at the specimen through? No, we don't use electron microscopes. We use ordinary fluorescence microscopes that biologists have. Okay. Um, electron microscopes are expensive and, and not ubiquitous. So we want to use fluorescence microscopes that pretty much all biology labs have access to. Absolutely. And you're just curious, you know, while we're talking about all of uh, these different techniques and these different things that you've pioneered, um, for these protocols and for these different procedures, where's the best place if a lab individual wants to, like you mentioned, sign up for this MIT course or to get these protocols? Is it on your lab website or where would people, where would be the best place for people to find these, uh, these manuals? Go to our website, synthneuro.org, which is short for Synthetic Neurobiology Group. Click on resources and you'll find links to all the downloadable step-by-step -step protocols, sometimes even videos. Um, and uh, there's also a web a link there that will tell you how to contact us if you want to um, come out and see uh, something in person or to learn about short courses that we often teach uh, at summer schools, for example, Excellent. although not this summer since everything's kind of on hold right yeah, now. Yeah, maybe next summer that's when that might have to happen, unfortunately. Um, going back to optogenetics, um, you know, I think scientists have a, a small issue with the idea that maybe some type of finding, um, whether truly amazing or maybe just something that's, uh, you know, slowly moving the field's understanding forward, sometimes can get picked up by the press and taken out of proportion by people who analyze it that aren't science educated. And I know optogenetics may be one of those uh, situations where you could probably Google opt optogenetics and find 50 different opinion pieces, press pieces that... Um, might take uh, certain ideas or aspects of it out of proportion. Um, you being, I guess, the father of optogenetics or someone who's really pushed this field forward, how do you contend when people are, you know, discussing press releases or you read things about optogenetics that you simply look at and you think that's a little bit blown out of proportion? Does that frustrate you at all? Is there an education that needs to be done uh, with these type of people? Like, how, what is your mindset when, you know, you read about this type of research in the popular press? Well, I do think it's very important to be very accurate. I mean, there are a couple of human trials for optogenetics ongoing for various forms of blindness, like retinitis pigmentosa. Of course, those are just trials. Nothing is approved, to my knowledge, uh, for use in humans. I think it's very important to be realistic and accurate. Now, when you're, uh, you know, your role is obviously doing a lot of research for MIT, do you have a role either through the university or through any other organizations of conveying your science to non-scientific entities? Um, I did give two talks that are on the TED.com website. That's probably the biggest public outreach I've done. Okay. And uh, for a couple of years, I also would go to the World Economic Forum and talk to people there. Um, I've often tried to connect with members of the community. Um, I did an event at the Boston Museum of Science a year or two ago. I forget the exact timing. Now, so I do think it's important to 
to to explain science accurately, realistically, and, and correctly. Now, that's sure. that's one thing that I think a lot of uh, research scientists usually struggle with, the idea of science communication to a lay audience. Um, what are some of the uh, the ideas or the tips that you have? Like you mentioned your TED Talk earlier, where you're giving a very truncated version of your research to someone who is not a neuroscientist or a biologist or an engineer. How do you structure your conversation with these people to uh, try to make it easy to understand? Do you struggle with that? What are some of the tips you have to communicate your science? Um, I don't think it's a shortcut. I think you have to really understand the inner truth of what you want to convey and then convey it in the most accurate but most digestible terms possible. And I guess part of why I think this is um, useful in neuroengineering is because you kind of have to do that anyway just to even do your work, right? If you're talking to a biologist and a clinician and a engineer and a neurotechnologist and you're trying to get them to work together to, to make a project happen, you have to be able to talk to all four. And so you have to speak in this public addressable way uh, from the get-go. So I think it kind of it's kind of not just for presentation purposes, it's important for facilitating collaborations in neuroengineering. So are, do you think we're at the point right now, you know, neuroscience is such a collaborative field you know, is there any collaborations that you have right now? Like, you know, we, you know, us as a biologist, you know, we may be talking to chemists, we may be talking to people in physics, mathematicians, you know, people all over the map. I'm curious, with neuroscience being such a collaborative field, do you have a collaboration that is, you know, way out in right field that may be something that seems completely unrelated to the work that you're doing, but when you weave it together, it actually is a useful collaboration, like something that just seems very unrelated that is really important to the scientific discovery? Well, we do spit out lots of companies. I mean, um, we spit out uh, and or are spitting out, I guess, a total of about six companies so far on topics from synthetic life to early disease diagnosis and everything in between. So I guess we do try to really bring together lots of people to help deploy these techniques to the world. So what's an advantage of starting a company to solve these problems as opposed to creating an academic research contingent to study them? Well, if you want to get hardware into the world, you have to have people who make the hardware. You can't, you know, with expansion microscopy, people can read the protocol. With optogenetics, you can just buy the DNA from a nonprofit like AdGene. But what about a microscope? What about a robot? Those don't just make themselves. They have to be made by companies and then sold. So what's the hardest thing? I know academics probably aren't trained to move into starting a company or a business world when you... When you did that for the first time, what were some of the challenges? Like, was that something that I know you mentioned that you took some business classes while you were in school? I'm sure that probably helped you out quite a bit. But when you decided this is probably the best way to get the science into the world, starting this company that focuses on, you know, a certain aspect of your research, what were some of the challenges of doing that? Well, I think the most important, it's always about the people, right? So one of the most important things to do with a co-founder, because uh, my day job takes up all of my, most of my hours. Um, and, uh, yeah, have somebody who has that kind of ex expertise and experience, the business side, to do it with you. So when you say these these partners, these are strictly business partners that are lacking a little bit on the science, or are these people that do have a really good mixture of a scientific background and a business background? These people have scientific backgrounds as well as business backgrounds. I mean, um, ideally, you know what you're doing, and you get can get it done. And I've been very privileged to have great co-founders. And I was going to say, being in the Boston area, there's got to be a lot of, I know, know you're at MIT, but I would imagine there's probably quite a bit of crosstalk, not only with, you know, the other universities, you know, Harvard, BU, you know, in the area, but probably also the hospitals as well. Like, 
how is the communication with other entities in the Boston area? Oh, it's great. It feels like being in one gigantic university sometimes. And uh, sometimes I'm really thinking of, like, MIT is a great home base, but then we collaborate with people at MGH, Children's Hospital, BU, you know, this goes on and on and on. And I know, you know, again, for the work that I do, microbiota work, there's a lot of small startup companies that specialize in that. Would you say that the trend to uh, generate small scientific startups in big cities such as Boston or Atlanta, I know San Diego is a really, really big hub, hub right now, San Francisco, the Bay Area. Do you see that trend continuing? Because I feel like there wasn't much of that in the last, uh, you know, 20 years ago. I feel like most of the scientific breakthroughs maybe were from certain types of companies, but most, you know, for the most part, it seems as though academia and industry in that regard were separated. But now it seems as though there's a huge crosstalk between these academic small startups and research institutions. Do you see that as well? I think problems have a natural home to be solved in. So if you have a project that needs collaboration, needs open discussion, you know, it has a long time scale, that might be a PhD thesis. But if you have something that needs scale, you have to have 100 people work in a team. You know, 100 people aren't going to collaborate on a PhD thesis, right? Right. And you need scalable capital in order to have a, a building that can house them. That might require a company. Now, um one bit of your science that I was a little unfamiliar with when you came to talk, so I, I wanted to get some detail on this, but you mentioned at the end of your presentation when you came to Atlanta that your group was working on some more uh, sophisticated fluorescent tags, um, you know, um, for different types of samples. Um, but I, I didn't get too much out of that besides the idea that you were working on those fluorescent tags. I was wondering if you could bring me up to speed with uh, some of the work that your group has been doing with that. Well, we've been working on robotic methods to do evolution. So evolution is a great way to make things better because you can select for certain criteria. And evolving proteins, of course, is a, a huge industry. So we wanted to build proteins that will help us image brain functions, including brain activity, you know, brain uh, you know, uh, signaling within cells and between cells and so forth. So we built a robot that can do that. And now we've been evolving molecules. So uh, one thing we've done is to create a fluorescent voltage indicator a molecule lights up fluorescently when a neuron is active. And we're working now on making a whole variety of different kinds of indicators. You know, the, with a robot, you know, can we make this into a high throughput endeavor? Now, is that something that's exclusive to neuronal tissue, or is there application for this outside of the brain? Oh, of course, all of these can be applied anywhere you want, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, in terms of uh, in vivo, is this something that is able to be conducted in vivo, or are all these experiments in vitro experiments right now? We can do it in vivo. We published a paper last fall in the awake behaving mouse brain. Okay. Imaging voltage. That's fantastic. Yeah. So what would be you? So when you mentioned, you know, that these different types of like fluorescent tags and these information, the, the crosstalk between this and optogenetics, there has to be a combination between optogenetics and the activation of these fluorescent markers, right? Like there's clearly convergent research there. You can use them together. So the fluorescent voltage indicator that we published last year uh, glows in, in the red, and you can use blue light to drive optogenetic activation of neurons. So you can combine the two, and we showed we could do that in uh, awake, awake, awake mouse brain. Nice. Um, you know, th this, this probably leads down the road. You know, we're, we're, you're investigating different pockets of the brain, and all of these different techniques are able to drive further understanding of individual brain function, brain connectivity. I'm curious, do you think... In our lifetime, we're going to get to the point where we can map out structurally and functionally the whole brain. Like I know that's an endeavor that you and your group are trying to do. Um, how far are we from that? 
Well, it requires us to bring together different techniques, right? Can we image or record activity throughout the brain and then use the expansion method to figure out the cell types and how they're connected and what molecules are at those connections and in the cells? And then can we integrate those data in order to find computational motifs or you know, maybe someday even simulate a brain? So would you? Uh, that's another thing that I wanted to touch on. I feel like a lot of scientists that are pushing the boundaries of which their techniques can lead them to right now are leaning a lot into the computational neuroscientists and this idea of modeling out certain phenomenon that you're, they're looking at. Um, how much has your group embraced you know, computational simulations? And would you say that that truly is the future of neuroscience research? Well, neuroscience is very broad, right? You know, uh, people are trying to cure Alzheimer's. People are trying to solve addiction. People are trying to understand how a worm turns left or right in response to a stimulus. So um, computation is probably not equally important for all of these goals, but I think it's important. Uh, and it's very helpful for helping analyze data. It's very helpful for trying to test our theories, what we know, by simulating and predicting. And so I, I think it's something we're going to do more and more of in the years to come. Would you say the field currently right now is more driven by experimental questions or by advocating the uh, advancement of new techniques? You know, sometimes I think as a student, it's interesting to focus, do you focus more on the scientific questions and ideas that are generated from your hypotheses and then future ideas moving forward or to focus on the technical aspects of running experiments? I wonder how you weigh both of those together. We're always driven by the science. I mean, the techniques are there to serve the science, not the other way around. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's partly why I think our group has been so uh, productive, is that we, we build our tools to solve urgent, pressing scientific needs, right? The reason that optogenetics have been sent out to thousands of, of people, that expansion microscopy is been used by hundreds of groups already, is because they help people solve real scientific questions. And, you know, this type of scientific questions you know, a lot of these ideas probably come from your collaborators, but I'm sure quite a bit of them probably come from your students. And I'm curious, how how often does a student come up to you and give you an idea that you haven't thought of before or like, wow, and amaze you? Because I know we're probably so used to in this, you know, academic structure that the principal investigator or the higher up, you know, the person either with the PhD or many years of experience, they come up with the, you know, ideas and everyone else in the lab implements them. And I'm curious, in your own research experience, how much has a lot of the work that you've done been driven by the ingenuity of students? Because I feel like that's not talked about enough in science. Oh, it's so important. I mean, I think, uh, again, this is why I really like to really think of every individual as an individual and work with them directly to understand how they might contribute to the world and then try to help mentor them to maximize their positive impact and, and generating ideas, figuring out why an idea is important. There's sometimes all of an idea. It'll take years until some of the group will help realize, you know what, that's an important idea. We should do it. So it's not just knowledge. There's also wisdom at hand. Now, if you're a – advice that I, I would like to hear from you to maybe a PhD student that's finishing right now and is going, you know, quaffling with the idea, do I continue with scientific research that's very similar to the work that I'm doing right now, uh, A, because I'm good at it. You know, I publish papers that may say that a certain – technique that I'm using and really good at and I'm just it, it's a it's a comforting type of thing or would you branch out to do something that you've never done before you know if I'm a biologist maybe I take on a project that has nothing to do with what my thesis work is would you say it's more advantageous for a student to uh, trudge on a path that they are accustomed to or would you say go ahead and do something completely different well it kind of depends on your goals right I mean if somebody is obsessed with solving a problem 
and they're working on it and they want to continue focusing on that, then that could yield gigantic impact, right? Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, somebody needs to change directions to achieve their quest or their vision, then that's important too. Again, I don't think uh, I don't think there's any formulas here. I think you have to really think about the nature of the scientific problem at a deep level. Yeah, I think it's tough because you know I feel you know one issue perhaps with the ap academic you know institutions right now and the idea of the hierarchy of a graduate student to a PhD student to a to a postdoc then to an academic advisor is the idea that you're really only exposed to a certain uh, research acumen, which is why I'm so happy that, you know, rotations and different types of uh, stints in other research labs, maybe at your own home institution, are becoming more widely available. Um, at MIT, do you guys welcome uh, rotations? Like, are students, when they finish their PhD program, would you say that they are very well versed in different types of science? Like, would you say that that's something that's beneficial to a graduate trainee? I think so, especially if uh, people are exploratory and they're trying to go in different directions. I mean, many of my people, uh, many of my students in the group have co-advisors um, who can help them more in a technical area or mentor them in a scientific area. Um, yeah, that's, we, I, and our group alone just works on so many different topics, right? We have people working on worm behavior and mouse behavior and nanotechnology and climate change even and all sorts of topics. So it's a, it's a very, very diverse group. Do you have anyone in your group that's working on artificial intelligence at all? Because I know a lot of people here that are interested in brain mapping studies uh, really delve into a lot of artificial intelligence. I'm curious if that's something you've either thought about or is that something you're actively researching? Using machine learning or inventing new kinds of machine learning? Uh, both. Well, definitely everybody uses machine learning, right? So we use machine learning for many projects in the lab. Um, as far as developing new kinds, well, if we learn enough about the brain, why not? Uh, I think that's a very interesting topic in the years to come. Is that do you foresee that the sophistication of the brain as a machine? You know, if we're talking about artificial learning, do you think we're going to be able to get to get to a point where a uh, computer server can, you know, predict all the permutations of the brain, and we really can have an artificial brain powered by a computer? Would you say that that's something that's attainable? Predict all the permutations of the brain. Well, I, I guess I guess it depends on your permutation. I mean, I'm very interested in the brain as a as a computational device, right? How does it take inputs and because you only have one body, decide what output should occur? And you know, how do emotions occur? How do decisions occur? Those are all things that I think are very interesting to me. Um, we'll wrap up in a little bit. Um, you've definitely been really generous with your time, and I appreciate it. Um, I wanted to talk about the idea of you know the city that you're doing your science in and how it contributes to the work. So you know, I mentioned earlier. Boston, you're able to pull all these different resources because it's a very um, science-heavy city. Um, it's probably very diverse because it's one of the largest cities in the United States. You were also fortunate, like I mentioned earlier, to do your graduate work uh, in the Bay Area at Stanford. And I was wondering, first, can you compare and contrast uh, both the Bay Area and Boston in terms of uh, their science and as well as uh, just overall living in those two cities for an extended period of time? Um, well, I like both. I mean, uh, I think that uh, the Boston area has a very, very high intellectual density. There's a lot of real adventurous thinkers who are thinking very long term and um, probing really uh, fantastic uh, directions. I really enjoyed my time in the Bay Area as well. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I like both those places. But I think I, I really like the, the sort of just sheer adventurousness of, um, of MIT, and that's partly why I chose to go there. 
uh, for my faculty job. And uh, I remember just from my undergrad days there how fearless everybody was and how long-term thinking people were. And that's one reason why I really enjoy um, being at MIT. But again, you have this sort of combinatorial explosion of possibility with all these people at Beth Israel and Brigham Women's and BU Medical School and Tufts and Brandeis. This goes on and on and on in terms of the sheer intellectual density of what's possible. And once you learn how to shovel snow, I mean, the rest is easy after that, correct? Um, well, again, those are that's a, a problem that technology can help with. It. So finally, uh, we bought a one of those um, snowblowers, and uh, it's actually not so bad. Nice, nice. Uh, yeah, me being from the south, I don't know what snow is, but I keep looking at uh, positions up north, actually Boston, for a few of them. So uh, I guess that's something I might have to uh, to uh, get a, uh, <laughs> get used to at some point in time. Um, you know, your, your group is, you know, such a, you know, you, you, being a PI of such a big group, you know, obviously communicating the science with everyone in the group is, uh, you know, a key factor in of itself. What would you say about the, you know, the emotional needs of your lab as well as, you know, you know, every lab person is going through a different aspect of their life, you know, being a mentor in a lab and being a PI, not only is you, not only are you, you know, a lab manager, not only are you someone who drives the scientific research forward, but you're kind of also a parental figure to a lot of the people in your lab. Um, is that something that just comes naturally after you've been a PI for so many years? Or, you know, how is it in terms of the non-scientific aspect of running a lab? Well, again, I think everybody is a different individual. I mean, we have to get to know people and think about them and understand their strengths and weaknesses and how you can help them maximize their positive impact. And I don't think there are any shortcuts there. I think you just have to put in the time and really get to know people and and and, and then, you know, be a bit experimental perhaps. You know, hey, this is a good strategy. Hey, you know what? This other one isn't. So the the final thing I'd like to go over with, uh, with you is, um, you know, you're very generous with your time and being an open book both in terms of, you know, the scientific research that you're doing, but also explaining the scientific research. I know when I Google your name online, not only do I get to, you know, see all the different papers that you've published and, you know, maybe critiques or reviews on those papers, but then you also go on the record and explain some of your scientific research. You know, the TED Talks that you do, you're able to explain everything very, very well. Um, But I am curious, you know, when you take your science hat off, if you ever take your science hat off, um, what else do you... uh, like to do for fun or as a hobby, something that maybe is, you know, right outside of your immediate scientific interest. What other uh, interests do you have? Well, um, my wife and I have two sort of, uh, you know, small kids. They're at age seven and 10. So that pretty much takes up all my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So being a, how is it different from being a parent versus being a lab mentor? Well, again, everybody's so different, you know, and, and our kids have different personalities and you have to kind of understand what people are like and interact with them as individuals. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, just as with a friend or with a parent or uh, a loved one, you know, kids are individuals too and you have to really respect them and get to know them at a deep level and, and be there for them. I know it's early, but do they seem to express an interest in science or the work that you do? Oh, well, of course. They're interested in everything. I mean, um, you know, this uh, this week, uh, our seven-year-old daughter were uh, writing poems and fairy tales, and our son is, you know, interested in in all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's, it's every day's an adventure. And um, I guess due to the situation that we're in right now, um, you know, I know that a lot of the work that you're doing right now doesn't seem to be related to COVID. But I'm curious how. Uh, 
how much are you involved in the COVID response? You know, is there any type of either consulting that you're doing or is there any direct research that your lab is doing related to the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, you know, people want to help and several people in the group wanted to work on uh, different projects, ventilators, potential therapies, potential diagnostics and so forth. So you know, a lot of people are joining forces with this and collaborating and we're trying to see how we can help. Excellent. Yeah, it's one of those things like there's just so many different ways that people can help and it's I mean, we're going through a time that's, you know, not recognizable. You know, everyone mentions, you know, the the Spanish flu at the turn of the last century, but really there's nothing uh, that we can compare the situation that we're in right now. So it's kind of uncharted waters and we just got to do the best uh, with what we've got right now. Um, You've been excellent with your time. I really, really do appreciate it. And I know that, you know, your research is going to continue to push the bounds of scientific discovery as we know it. And I definitely thank you for that. And you've been just uh, great uh, talking with us. And I feel like I've learned a lot, quite a bit. So thank you so much for, you know, uh, giving us a moment of your time. I really appreciate it, Dr. Boyden. Fantastic. Well, have a great day and stay safe and well. Thank you. You as well. Thanks so much to Dr. Boyden for giving us uh, some of his time to talk about his fantastic research. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. And uh, just a reminder, uh, as you know, this COVID pandemic has changed the way a lot of the things have been run. All the podcasts that you'll be hearing uh, probably from this point forward, unless something changes, will be uh, remote. So again, we're still trying to figure out a way to present the audio quality as best as we can. Um, You know, so apologies if it's not up to par for what you've heard before, but we are constantly trying to improve uh, the quality of the product that you guys are listening to. Again, thank you for the time. Enjoy the rest of your day and talk soon.